Hello and welcome to the Hive Poetry Collective here on KSQD 90.7 Community Radio, Santa Cruz, California. I'm your host this week, Lisa Allen Ortiz, and we have Lee Rossi here on The Squid. Welcome, Lee. Thank you, Lisa. I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm really glad you're here, and I'm really glad our listeners will be able to hear your poetry and learn a little bit about you. Um, I wonder if you'd be willing to read a poem as way of introduction, and then we can talk a little bit about the life that made it. I wonder if you would read Foil on page 87. Oh, I'd be delighted to read that. This is page 87 of Lee Rossi's new book, Darwin's Garden, Studies from Life. Yeah. Um, This is a poem, one of those poems where you kind of, you go through life and all of a sudden you realize, oh, that was a missed opportunity. This is that kind of poem. Uh, A lost love, if you will. Foil. I ride the long arc of the freeway through West L.A., the low, bland shops and houses, flexing in the heat like mats of algae, distant hills and towers wrapped in petrochemical gauze. I'm thinking about love, the way fishermen on the pier must think about their tropical homes, the shacks and shanties filled with children, the carbide-tainted waters teeming with fish every color of metal. Has the pollution of their dreams been slow or quick? I catch the glare off a taller building, that hospital, and I'm nearly blinded by the memory of a girl's copper hair. I love that poem and that that image at the end. It's so astonishing and fish-like somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. And... Can you explain what you mean by lost opportunity? Because this certainly seems like an opportunity caught. Like it surprised me that you said this was about a lost opportunity. Do you mean the lost, like a memory of memory of a lover? You know, might have been the right one, but I couldn't recognize that at the time, mm-hmm. and so you know, uh, just passed on, and and then suddenly turned around and noticed, oh, that was much better than I thought at the time. <laughs> This is a book, I'll describe a little bit about this collection, Darwin's Garden, and you tell me when I'm wrong, but what I understood it to be is um, a beautiful concoction of how um, uh, we begin, uh, childhood and Eden, and what it makes us into, and what I like about that poem foil is that it's kind of what you've caught in the end. It seems like the later poems in the book are more love poems, um, a lot of childhood poems mm-hmm. in the beginning, and a lot of poems about faith, and a few poems about um, loss of faith in a very secular and kind of crazy world. Mm, okay. It's really a journey from Eden in a lot of ways. It is. Um, there's uh, two main streams of story that go into the formation of the book. But first, let me back up and say that I uh, got the idea for the book, or at least the approach that I took in this book, uh, from reading um, Yusuf Komanyaka's uh, earlier book called Magic City, which is about his childhood in um, Bogalusa, Louisiana, and uh, his struggle to understand the complexities of the social and uh, and natural life around him, and um, and I wanted to do that. And he, he does it in a very straightforward, what seems to me direct sort of way. You know, his, his story is of course about being black and growing up. You know, in a context where civil rights and you know uh, racism are very strong influences, and um, and I wanted to kind of mirror the progression of his book and be, try to move in a direction of uh, uh, greater understanding. So you'll see at the beginning of the book, the, the narrator is sort of floundering, which is where I started out, right? Mm-hmm. And then move on through uh, childhood and adolescence 
coming to terms with the, you know, the tribal environment in which I was raised. I was raised a Roman Catholic. I went to the Catholic seminary for five years. And, you know, when it came time to break from that, you know, it was a huge rupture for me. And, um, and then the question became, well, how do I organize my life if I'm not going to be a Catholic, if I'm not going to be a priest, if I, what is it that's going to organize and guide my life? And I realized that having cut myself off from my tribe, I needed to find, you know, other people that I could relate to. And, you know, that comes, becomes a kind of quest for love in general. Beautiful. How old were you when you had to make, do that wrestling when you, when you decided to give up the seminary? 17, 18, 19. Okay. So you were in the seminary From 17, the 18. ages of 13 to 18. Oh, really? You start seminary at age 13? In the, yeah. In, in St. Louis, we had, a, um, we had a high school seminary in addition to the minor and major seminaries. Oh, so you make a decision to give your life to God and be a priest at the age of 13. Yes, and it was also a convenient way to get out of the house. Okay, because it was like a boarding school. Wow, you guys yeah, must have been yeah. crazy kids. Yeah. And what are you comfortable talking about your faith at that age? Do you feel like it was a faith in God or was it cultural? Um, I think it was a faith in God. I, you know, I had, I still have fairly strong ethical commitments, and um, I wanted, I wanted a world where you know people were kind to one another and where they you know uh, obeyed the rules and took care of one another, um, and. Uh, and the church seemed to be, you know, the, the way for me to go if I had those kinds of interests. My parents were, you know, they were depression survivors. You know, they, a couple of farm kids left the farm and, you know, had to, um, had to take care of themselves, support themselves from the ages of 13 or 14. And so their whole life was wrapped up in survival. And, uh, and growing up in, you know, the 50s in the suburbs, uh, my focus was not on survival like theirs was. My focus was on, well, what can I do with my life? What does my life mean? Who do I want to be? Who do I want to become? Um, you know, and from there, you know, the um, I could see the real things wrong with my parents' life, but even greater things that were wrong with society as a whole. And, uh, you know, I quickly became attuned to the whole civil rights movement. You know, I was a teenager, you know, a young teenager, uh, watching the daily news and seeing people get uh, attacked by police and police dogs and tear gassed. And uh, I'd heard, you know, reports of murders and uh, in the South. And I found that extremely upsetting. You know, and contrary to not just, you know, my, my learned eth- ethical or moral system, but, you know, something internal, something very deep. So I don't know where we're going with that, but, you know. Well, uh, let's go to a poem, actually, because um, I'm trying to remember that really beautiful poem. Is it Lasting Things about, um, it's like, oh, I think it's on page 68. I happen to remember the number of the page. Okay. I'm like, oh, it's on 68. Oh, the bring down. Oh, okay. Um. Do you mind reading that? I like no, that poem. No, I don't. Okay. It's not where I wanted to go next, but let's go there because okay. we kind of well, landed get, Let me give era. you a little bit of backup uh, or a little bit of backstory to this poem. It's called What a Bring Down, uh, which is a the title of a song by Cream, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite, all-time favorite bands. Um, uh, and uh, uh, it, this recounts a... Um, a cream concert shortly after I had a knee operation, which was what I figured was going to get me out of the Vietnam War. Okay. okay. Yeah. I am, don't have, have a kneecap. Patella, you've had your patella removed? Yes. I just know this piece of biographical detail from reading this poem, but I, I do have a question. Do you have a patella now? No. Did you have it removed to get out of? Like, yes. In, okay. So. Well, no, I, I had a knee problem, but, you know, also okay. I needed... Uh, but it was what got me out of the out of the war, well, we and it was the, the reason poem. why I yeah okay. <laughs> so with that in mind, what to bring down? And there's an epigraph from Ginger Baker: "Water in a fountain doesn't get me very high." 
One night only, rain sifting like seed pearls from clouds of cotton batting. Psychedelic harbingers played the auditorium. More wounded, yet never been to war, I hobbled on crutches past security, drunk on young, <clears throat> on young girls' beauty, their dresses billowing about their knees like surf. The opening act played one song five times, different keys, different speeds. We were all young then, flaunting our long hair and beards, floating like smoke above ourselves as union negotiations between spirit and body kept breaking down. Six-foot amps squatted atop one another like demon acrobats endowed with chiliastic fervor, as if the millennium could come and go during each six-minute song. The bass thundered in clusters of sixteenth notes, carpet-bombing the audience. We felt flayed and remade every second. Choose, we were told, death or war or the disgrace of jail. We wanted a middle way, and I chose mutilation, the surgeon's blade, excising a kneecap, small body part, unnecessary for all but kneeling in foxholes or at the altar of authority. Drugged on codeine and aspirin, I slumped in my seat, my leg in its plaster cast thrust into the aisle, like a rudder vainly steering my little boat through history's engulfing sea, never sure of my destination, innocence or complicity. That's such a nice poem, Lee. I love the way the knee is the rudder. There, in that little moment in history, it's also so interesting that as a priest, so you had given up the seminary by then, and so you were no longer on your knees worshiping, but to get along in the world without going to war, you were literally busted your own kneecap. Yeah. Um, wow, how interesting. So do you think there is a relationship between was it a logical, was your interest in poetry an outgrowth of your struggles with seminary and the church? No, no. <laughs> I've always, um, well, ever since high school, I was interested in poetry, but I didn't know what to do with it. You know, I was, uh, uh, you know, um, my parents didn't even finish high school, you know, and there were no poets around me, you know. Uh, the the only poetry I knew was um um, the Diaz Ire, uh, and the funeral service and AM radio, you know, so my first poets were all, you know, pop singers. <laughs> I was trying to get the AM radio thing. Okay. G <laughs> yeah. Gene Vincent, Bill Haley and the Comets, those kinds of things. You know, it wasn't until Simon and Garfunkel showed up that, you know, I started to get a sense of real poetry in my, my song lyrics. And but did you call it poetry in your mind when you heard Simon and Garfunkel? Or did you think that was music? Like when did you read poetry oh, in high school? Did uh, you... Well, we read Francis Thompson, okay. uh, Alfred Noyes, you know, Catholic, good Catholic poets. And uh, they were um, dreadful. But, you know, that's what the nuns wanted us to read. Uh, I um, didn't get to... I knew there was something more to Paul Simon than to uh, Tin Pan Alley. Um, and I could feel that, uh, you know, and I couldn't articulate it necessarily, uh, what what it was that I was listening to. But, you know, as I've grown and read and, you know, understood more about uh, the craft of poetry, I, I see now that, you know, they were leading me on, you know, it's kind of, uh, to, you know, something was even better. Okay. And do you think your ability to read closely is at all related to your um, relationship with reading the Bible or studying verses or like studying those stuffy Catholic Catholics poets? don't do that stuff. You know, they Catholics do what they're told by their priests and bishops. You know, they don't read the, the Bible closely at all. Wow. Um, so I hate to dispel that, <laughs> that <laughs> myth. You know, uh, we are not people of the book. We are people of the uh, bureaucracy. Oh. So it was a true rebellion when you left. Oh, yeah. And did you disappoint people? I think my mother was disappointed 
But she was disappointed when I went in the seminary in the first place because she always envisioned me, you know, growing up and having children in a nice house in the suburbs and, you know, uh, and I say this, a sweet little wife, you know, with blonde hair. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I delighted in disappointing her. So, <laughs> but, then, but then when that... I left, she th- saw, oh, well, maybe, maybe there are grandkids in the future, you know, <laughs> no, that didn't happen either. And was she disappointed when you became a poet? Was she worried about that? She had no idea what a poet was um, or what a poet, that a poet might have any kind of real uh, social use. My um, my father used to say to me, brother, he was from the South, brother, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? <laughs> and uh, I could say, well, brother was, you know, a term that I'd only read in Faulkner, you know? <laughs> but but I knew what he was talking about. Um and, uh, you know, and all I could say was, Dad, they don't pay poets in this uh, this culture. Uh, not very much, anyway. And, uh, but this is what I really love, you know. And so I never showed my books to my parents or read them, you know. In fact, I got into really uh, major trouble with my sister when I sent her a copy of my first book, which was, uh, how shall I say, juvenilia, you know, and, and hard to parse even for me now. Um, but... Um, she she saw something on the back, said something about my dad being a bartender. He wasn't a bartender, my sister would say. He was a business owner, and but he was also a bartender, you know. So, that's, oh. so you know, that's the kind of family dynamic that I emerged from, you know, escaped from. It's people's stories are so interesting. How we get on these roads, of yeah. Like, being in love with language that way or whatever makes us turn to this kind of... Yeah, I, I didn't start writing poetry seriously. I mean, I wrote three poems a year from the time I was 17 until the time I was 39. And right before I turned 40, I, I went into a, um, a poetry workshop at UCLA Extension with this uh, gifted madman named Jack Grapes, hmm. uh, who is the to my mind, one of the most gifted poetry impresarios uh, in the whole world. But because he's on the West Coast, nobody knows him, right? But uh, he was wonderful, and he taught us all kinds of things uh, about getting out of our way in order to find, let the poetry emerge. And you do that, I think. And I, and I try. Every poem. Hey, can we read another one? The one I meant to read second, um, or ask you to read second, just so people get an idea of the book. Um, a Habit of Ascent. A Habit of Ascent, yes. Here we go. You, of course, have gotten an idea of the book uh, before, and this book is called Darwin's Garden, and our guest on the Hive Poetry Collective is Lee Rossi, and you're listening to 90.7 KSQD in Santa Cruz. And I hope you're having fun. <laughs> okay, Habit of Ascent is, um, I can't say it's a persona poem, but, uh, you know, I'm remembering things that happened 70 years ago at this point. Um, so uh, it happens in a backyard in suburban St. Louis, you know, shortly after, you know, the fields full of dairy cows become houses. Mm. A habit of ascent. Childhood, the first eternity, as I wandered our vast acre, trying to escape the sun. How lonely it seemed with no children nearby, just my sister, an insistent mouth at mother's worried breast. Catalpa trees fanned the leaves like Ants trying to save their powder from streaking. No clambering into their narrow laps. The pear oozed like a teenager, craggy with acne, its bark a magnet for columns of ants. I circled the firs and stroked the knees of elm and oak, giants in conversation as the wind riffled their hair. Only the apple tree was short and broad enough to harbor this restless climber. Its cool fire surrounded me as I climbed into flowered lace and huddled in the second crook, watching leaves, then apples, sweeten on stems. Here where all the trouble began, in the garden of the heart. At night, I dreamed the whole miracle again, 
an explosion of green branching into darkness, and yet I wanted more, some escape from what I was, from what my parents wanted me to be. Come morning, I drape myself along a limb like a python, inhale the husky perfume, stroke the swollen fruit, as if this had always been my home. A little turn there at the end, as if this had always been my home. So interesting to me that you say this is a persona poem, um, because I read this as kind of an archetypical, like really Eden, like where we all came from. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I just love all the language in here about the trees and the affection and knowledge like a kid has about his backyard Mm -hmm. and our own little world. I, I have always thought the story of Eden is so strange and troubling and true yes um especially in relation to our own the way we grow up as individuals and i think you caught that so well here and so um the last line as if this had always been my home is interesting to me can you say anything about that um i think it has something to do with the child's realization of his uh ultimate alienation from his family and from their social circle, you know, the the child belongs in nature, you know, and in order to survive, he has to return to nature, um, his own nature in order to, um, uh, find meaning and direction in his life. Yeah. I think that's really true. And what got us kicked out of Eden, if you, are interested, you know, if you believe the metaphor of the story. Well, I at just all. read the Paradise Lost again. So oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. Um, so, is that um, knowledge of good and evil, right? Like the understanding of his, the kids' parents' lives, like you were saying. And, you know, those things that you said earlier in this interview that you didn't like, you, you had an, um, an innate sense of what's right and wrong that you wanted to uphold and sort of help right, grow. Right. Um, and, yeah, and that poem, you know, uh-huh. Milton's poem, is also about self-affirmation, at least to my mind. What do you mean? That, you know, uh, Eve eats the apple because Satan convinces her that, you know, she'll just be God's lackey, you know, as long as, you know, she do, does exactly what God says. And she makes the determination that, uh, well, you know, I'm going to be my own lackey and not, you know, somebody else's. Um, and, uh, Adam, you know, he's, he's more of a schlub than, than she is. He, he can't live without her. So he, he decides that, well, okay, he'll eat the apple too. Mm. That's how. Yep. And now here we are, we're all our own lackeys in this. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. The, the one, our, the lucky ones, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> lucky lackeys. Lucky lackeys. And some, wait, do you have a, one, a book in here called Lucky? No. No, I have uh, the last section is called Lucky Stiff. Oh, Lucky Stiff. Okay. I was going to say, wow, that's funny if Lucky comes up twice. Um, yeah, I think a lot about Eden what, at the time we are now in relation to climate change and how we've gone over the edge of 400 parts per million or whatever, right? And all of a sudden, the story of Eden has this kind of very sad <laughs> feeling to it to me that we are are we in a garden again that we're getting kicked out of and how are we going to figure that out we've kicked ourselves out yeah mm-hmm. yeah it does seem like that um which is why i think this book of poems uh darwin's garden is extra resonant because it's not just our story of leaving a garden and finding love i think as a community we're going to have figure that out too since we've kicked ourselves out of the garden right right. we're gonna have to figure out how to love each other and that we're all yeah or else we'll die as Auden says yeah Yeah, or else we'll die as (laughs) Auden says (laughs) yeah well that's the thing that I um realized about the way I write is um you know I have a story but the story uh also resonates for me you know I pick up uh bits of myth and uh, other stories that, you know, seem part of that whole experience. And uh, and so I, I try to suggest that, you know, with the images and, you know, the, um, 
the music of the poems as well. Mm-hmm. You try to suggest the mytho- the yeah the mythological stuff. I mean, you know, Darwin's Garden is you know it's the Garden of Eden, of course, but it's also social Darwinism. You know, it's not just Darwin's ascent of man um, kind of uh, idea. It's that uh, uh, in the context of you know lower middle class America, you know, it's dog eat dog, nature red in tooth and claw. Mm-hmm. That's what Tennyson said, you know, and and that's the way I felt, you know. Uh, grade school was, you know, uh, a hotbed of um, persecution, fighting, uh, thievery. Uh, it was this Catholic school now. Uh, a real education. Yeah, it was a real education in, you know, uh, the way of um, nature, that certain kind conception of nature. Well, I would like to take a little break. So I really would like to ask you to read one of the long poems from about that childhood. Uh-huh. Um, okay. But I want to take a little break, and then we'll be back. We are on KSQD, and our guest is Lee Rossi. You're on the Hive Poetry Collective. And we'll be back in a moment. for the Hive Poetry Collective Poetry Calendar for Santa Cruz. This is Sunday, November 24th. And hey, Joy Harjo, our own National Poet Laureate, is coming to San Francisco December 10th at the JCC in San Francisco. Tickets are $30. It's at 7 p.m. You do not want to miss her. So please get your tickets. You can get them at the JCC website. That's the Jewish Community Center in San Francisco. I think it's jccsf.org. Joy Harjo, December 10th. Also, tomorrow in our own Santa Cruz, tomorrow, Monday, November 25th, it's the Word Church's Legendary Collective Slam. It's their monthly slam at the Vets Hall in Santa Cruz, 842 Front Street. The night breaks down like this there's a writing workshop as there always is before word church at 4 p.m 5 30 the slam list go out goes out and six o'clock the party starts two or to ten dollars cover fee whatever you choose that's word church and most important of all we don't want you to forget that the hive poetry collective presents patricia smith <laughs> if you haven't seen Patricia Smith before, you must. She's coming to Santa Cruz. She'll be at the MA, the Museum of Art and History, at 7 p.m. Sunday, December 8th. Please visit hivepoetry.org for more info or to ask questions or sign up for our mailing list or visit us on Facebook to get all excited about it. That's Hive Poetry Collective. And save your seat by visiting the Eventbrite page for Patricia Smith. You can find links hither and yon if you search Patricia Smith, Santa Cruz Hive, anything like that. 
If you don't know who Patricia Smith is, Lee Rossi, of course, does. I'm just going to read a little bio of her here so you'll know who's coming on December 8th. Patricia Smith is the author of seven books of poetry, including Incendiary Art, winner of the NAACP Image Award and the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. Should have been Jimmy Savannah, which won the Lenore Marshall Prize from the Academy of American Poets and Blood Dazzler, which she wrote in 2008, which was a chronicle of Hurricane Katrina and which was nominated for the National Book Award. She's the 2014 Guggenheim Fellow, a 2012 Fellow at the McDowell and Yadu, and a two-time Pushcart Prize winner. She's won a whole bunch of other prizes, and one of those prizes is she is the four-time individual champion of the National Poetry Slam. That's the most successful poet in the competition's history, and she is worth hearing. She's just a great poet. I brought um, a poem from Blood Dazzler, a short one to read for you. This is called Katrina. Katrina by Patricia Smith I was birthed restless and elsewhere, gut-dragging and bulging with ball-lightning slush, broke through with branches, steel, I was bitch-monikered, hipped. I hefted a whip-rein, a swirling sheet of grit. Scraping toward the first of you, hungering for wood, walls, unturned skin. With shifting and frantic mouth, I loudly loved the slow bones of elders, fools, and willows. That is Patricia Smith, a poem by Patricia Smith. And she'll read it better when she comes to Santa Cruz on December 8th, Sunday. So get your tickets. And thanks for listening to the Hive Poetry Collective Calendar. And we'll be right back with our guest, Lee Rossi. Hello and welcome back to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7. I'm your host this week, Lisa Allen Ortiz, and my guest is Lee Rossi, and we've been talking about his book, Darwin's Garden, um, which is a a retelling of his kind of life's path um, from Rudy... uh, kind of feisty working class family um in what in missouri is that right in st louis in yeah. st louis suburbs and, of st louis and um his movement through faith almost becoming a priest but 
not quite. Um, and when we left, we last left, I was talking to him about his family. And so I was going to ask him to read one of the poems in this book about his family. And there's a good one about spraying, working in the yard with your dad. Is that the one? Yes. Yes. Yeah, what I'm going to read. Uh, yes. Spraying for pests. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. We, this was a yearly spring ritual that we would, uh, that he would uh, take on. And, uh, you know, my dad worked 18 hours a day. He was a bartender, right? But he loved to get out of his yard because he was a, a farm boy, basically, you know, and he really missed that contact with the land. So uh, this was his version of contact with the land. <clears throat> Spraying for pests. Silver tank strapped to his back. My father might have been a spacewalker our scuba diver, trawling the deeper reaches of a reef. The bottles he poured wore the Jolly Roger. They grinned at my sister and me from their high perch in the fruit cellar, above rows of mason jars filled not with fetal monsters all of the Natural History Museum, but canned peaches and pears. Feet splayed and crouching under his burden, he trundled from tree to forbidden tree, waving the wand like a fairy, blessing all with poison mist. Winter long we dined on swollen, unblemished fruit, juices sweet as the tropics, ripe as the unborn. Isn't that interesting that he lost his place on the farm, right? Your par- you said in your story that your parents were kind of kicked out of their own Eden, yeah. and he's recreating it here, but it's kind of a monstrous one with the Jolly Roger and whatever line. You have a nice line about well, not just the unborn, but the poison mist. Oh, and the splayed and crouching. It's kind of monstrous. Yeah. I um, heard a scientist say, we were talking about um, climate change in the first half of the show, and that that, that kind of suburban time that we've had, that we're that now is in its, you know, Starting last, to disappear. Starting to disappear was kind of a 60-year anomaly in human history, right? Absolutely. Where we were not sustainable in any way shape or form. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, it was a interesting way of leaving Eden. And the, that story happens in the in between the covers of this book. Yeah. You it, can it, kind of see what happens. Yeah, it, it has the seeds of its own destruction, which mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to get at, I think, yeah. in that poem. Yeah, it does have the seeds of its own destruction. And here, he thought he was taking care of his yard. Yeah. Um, and we all kind of did that right we thought we were doing the right thing right right i've got another poem in here where he takes out after the moles and gophers in the yard and uh, that's a pretty sad poem too do you want to read that one it might be nice to have another poem about your dad your dad appears in here lots i also like the one where he's working as a i can't remember the title of it but he's working as a bartender or as your sister would say a business owner oh yeah the, the one about uh Custer. Oh, maybe. I can't remember. But read the one you were thinking of reading. Well, I'll read Sudden Harvest. Okay. Oh, yes, please. One August, bagworms lit my father's evergreens like Christmas lights. Thousands of gold cocoons. Simple materials. Needles and something like spit to hold them together. He told me to get outside and pick them off the bushes. I see myself standing there, hesitant, a tin pan dangling in my hand. What was I thinking? The nuns at school were always reminding us of the pains of hell, the fire, the darkness, the worms that ate but did not consume the sinner. Or maybe I was thinking about Aunt Marge and her beautiful cherry box, cushioned by velvet on all sides. The worms would be halfway through the wood by now, in less than a year, there'd be nothing but holes. When my father came out to cut the grass, he yelled at me, I remember that, above the roar of the mower. So I started, the heat like a fur coat turned inside out, the sweet smell of clipped grass, the choking smoke. The pods were sticky, prickly. As I worked, I saw the inchlings crawling from their sleeping bags like kids waking at camp. When the pan was full, he took it and told me to come with him out back 
to the trash pit where we burned newspapers. I loved watching each sheet as it blackened, curled, and revealed the unburnt page beneath just before it caught. But not this time, when he poured my little captives onto the charred ground, shook gas onto them. <clears throat> I, thought of, uh, I thought of the priest at high mass, sprinkling us with holy water, and he lit them like charcoal. Oh, they curled, too, in the sudden heat, blood smoke rising sideways in the pit. What must he have thought, seeing me staring, fists clenched, the moisture boiling from my cheeks and eyes, trying to read that fiery script? It's so interesting how the perspective changes there at the end, just with that question, like, what must he have been thinking? Mm. And then we see the kid, and that the kid seems to be thinking the whole time about sin, or, I mean, his mind is wandering, wandering too, but the question of, like, <clears throat> sin, like, he keeps coming back to what the nuns think and what getting blessed by holy water, like, as if there's a good and bad, and he's killing pests, the whole problem of killing pests. He's right? very, he's, conflict, he's confused. I, I wouldn't say he's conflicted. He's just confused by the things that adults tell him adults tell him, and then the things that adults do, you know, and there's a kind of casual cruelty in the thing that the, the father does with the uh, the bagworms, right? Um, because he can, the child can imagine himself as, you know, one of those beings and uh, being incinerated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or just doing what bagworms always do. Right, in their little sleeping bag. Yeah. The little inchlings. So tell us about your writing practice, and I'd be interested to know, if, like, this poem, did this poem come to you in a different way than a poem like Foyle did? Uh, no, they all come rushing at me, mm -hmm. and uh, and it takes me a while to kind of sort out various pieces. Um, you know, I, like I suggested earlier, I... You know, I, I try to sit down every day to to write, and um, and I never know what will show up. Sometimes when nothing shows up, I just try to jot down some dreams that I've had the night before. Um, but on other occasions, um, I will have an idea, or I'll have a draft of an idea, and then I'll try to see what flows into that, and and then I'll. Hope to make a big enough container for all the feelings and insights, you know, that keep pressing out of the, the text of the poem. <laughs> I love when po poets talk about how they write. It's really nice. That makes complete <coughs> sense to me. I hope it, it makes sense to you, dear listener. That was Lee Rossi talking about how he writes here on KSQD 90.7 Santa Cruz. And I liked what you said about it also comes to you in pieces. Mm -hmm. Um so something, a poem like that you just read, or read recently, Sudden Harvest, which seems very narrative, but has, did that come to you first as the story, and did you discover the kind of imagery of the church as you were going through it? Um, I think it started with a couple of things that, you know, didn't necessarily go together. One was the, the image of, you know, harvesting bagworms, mm -hmm. and then the image of my Actually, it was my mother's death that I was thinking about. You know, it wasn't my Aunt Margie. She she was also dead at that point. Um, <clears throat> but um, then, you know, the other stuff just was there in the background and then suddenly came into the foreground. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Those little decisions you make, like making Aunt Margie instead of your mom, was such a good choice because if it was your mom, it would have been too Heavy. It, heavy for that part of the poem that is really more about you and about the speaker and his dad and the meaning of those worms. And we, I wouldn't have been able to enjoy all the little charms of language and that image of them burning at the end if I thought it was you were not taking your mom's death seriously. But there's something yeah. about Aunt Margie that. Yeah. 
It's Soon there would decisions. be nothing but holes, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know how I got to that line, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that one was... of the gifts that comes from, you know, diving into a poem, accepting what it has to offer. Yep, and the velvet in all sides and, and those little worms through the holes. It's really sweet and funny and macabre, <laughs> everything we want. Um, so you... you um. Oh, I wanted to ask you to read, if I could, a poem that's not in here. It appeared in Rattle, and I really liked it when I read it. Um, but I don't want to surprise you. Are you comfortable reading a poem that's not in Darwin's Garden? Oh, absolutely. But it seems I a love all my children. <laughs> like it follows um, <laughs> our discussion. So okay, okay. This is called. Um, well, you know, I, I love titles that are uh, portmanteau. You know, uh, kind of. Two words, you know, slam together that, you know, don't belong together necessarily. Mm-hmm. But we're all familiar with microcosms and macrocosms, cosmology. This is called microcosmology. Everything fits. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm having a hard time with my voice tonight. Everything fits into everything else. We know that who come bursting from our mothers in a gush of being. Our children already nestled in sacks tucked safely inside. Infinite regression sends us back into the womb after womb from which we grew. There was a soup, we're told, where the first living creatures were brewed. Not something you'd eat, but eat it, they apparently did, until little was left but waste oxygen and each other. How long did they take to find a taste for those other squirming thingies? Eat it or fuck it? And in which order, the rush to colonize never stopped. Except in our imagination, we can't stuff ourselves back into that ever-expanding bottle, which itself was once just something infinitely dense and imaginably hot. And before that, not even not. Not even not. I like that. I really like the order and disorder in that poem. No, that has a, it has a, um, a form, a form that encourages order, right? There's something about the listing of things that yeah. encourages order, but it's very chaotic. And at the end, it just all falls apart in a very satisfying <laughs> way. Yeah, that's my mind. Welcome to it. <laughs> and what was the project of that poem? Did you, did that come to you also in pieces or? Um, no, that came pretty much uh, all in one piece. And I think it, you know, it's, it's one of those gifts that I got from becoming a parent very late in my life. I uh, I waited until I was past 50 to have children. And, um, uh, and I have a great deal of wisdom to offer them, but very little energy. You know, so <laughs> it's a kind of trade-off for all of us. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I started thinking about where we come from, you know, how we got here, you know, about the physical fact of physical bodies existing in, you know, in this kind of inexplicably vast universe of ours. So that's kind of where some of that comes from. Yeah, I struggled with that, but I love that we can, it's just a truth, right, that we can attain all the little sacks of all the people who are coming next Mm -hmm. inside us, which is always extraordinary. Yeah, I wrote, wrote a poem once about how, those little scientific things you learn that are absolutely unbelievable that when you have a baby, when a woman has a baby, the fetus leaves cells inside her that cling to her heart. So they find the baby cells on her heart and in other little parts of her organs. Ooh, nasty. (laughs) (laughs) We're so gross. (laughs) We are. Yeah. Wonderful. At the same time. We're beautiful. It's funny. Um, Speaking of that, would you read Lasting Things on page 38? Oh, sure. This is Lee Rossi from his book, Darwin's Garden. All right. This is, is this a, another cosmological poem? No, I think this is a... <clears throat> I couldn't figure... I was hoping you would help us figure this out. This is an eschatological poem, you know. Uh, eschatology, of course, being the study of final things, you know. Uh, death in Catholic telling, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. No. Oh, is that really the term? Is that a Catholic term, eschatology? Eschatology. Well, I don't know. It, oh, did yeah. you make that up? No, no I didn't make poem. it up. Okay. It's it's a theological term, and I'm sure lots of 
you know, Christian theologians have bandied about the word eschatology over, you know, for thousands of years. Um, but this is my own take on... And it just happens to sound like sc- scatological eschatology. Oh. <laughs> Sad. I think I could be a 13-year-old Sad. in some You know, it's school. too bad that I wasn't able to work that into this poem. <laughs> but... Uh, but maybe there will be a poem called Eschatological coming <laughs> soon. Um, okay, lasting things. Like a whistle only dogs can hear are notes tuned to adolescent ears. Like bats swooping through invisible night with only uncanny sonar to guide their dim-sided way. Like supersonic angels ablaze at wavelengths hidden to everyone but God. These inhabitants of a world not quite ours pass stealthily, like minutes and hours, impervious to every sense but dread. We call them many things, ancestors, forebears, the loving dead, but can never quite escape the sting of their regard, their disappointment and perpetual jealousy. Only when we join them in their contempt for the living do we understand finally what they mean, those quaint concepts, eternity and hell. That's such an astonishing and strange poem to me, and I would really like to talk about it with you. Can I tell you what I understood from it? Okay. Um, I wish somebody would. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. Uh, these inhabitants of a world not quite ours pass stealthily. So there's something, there's some critter in, there's some, there's a speaker in here, and then there are the ghosts, kind of ghosty things, yeah. which seem to be our, whatever the poem says, like whatever they're called, right? Like our ancestors, our forebearers, the loving dead. Yeah. So the ghosty things are our actual ancestors. Yeah. Um, And they're judging us, which all that's kind of making sense but then when we join them in their contempt for their living do we understand what they mean those concepts of eternity and hell so when we die and become become ghosty okay things then we can understand that okay then then we yeah then we we but we're mostly not the the poem is really about jealousy the jealousy that the dead have living right Mm -hmm. and uh i uh and we become, and that's what happens to us. And that's what happens dead, to us we when we die, unless you know we we you know uh, achieve nirvana and kind of you know graduate to you know that other state. You know, beyond. Although I heard, uh, I I was went to a dharma talk, a Buddhist guy. I could barely understand it; was so abstract. But he said <laughs> something that blew my mind: that actually the divinities, like people who the bodhisattvas who become enlightened, mm-hmm. feel jealous of us humans mm. and are um sad they're not here anymore um because because of our suffering that that that's what makes life worth living right if you know everything okay. then you're not suffering so i kind of like these ancestors who well um, i heard something interesting in the similar vein it's just slightly different that the the things that they're jealous about is not just the suffering but also the bliss that comes with the physical body oh. and that's the thing that you know uh uh, some heretical Buddhists that I know, you know, talk about about the importance of acknowledging all the the wonderful things that come with having a living body and you know being involved in you know, this wonderful planetary uh, society that we inhabit. Yes, isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah, it's and something Catholics also maybe don't think about that much is bliss. I don't know anything about Catholicism. I realize maybe I have a whole bunch because every time I see well, they, they, they put it off stuff. until you know you, you know they can until okay. they can't enjoy it anymore. Basically, yeah. isn't that funny that so many of our traditions really um, don't celebrate bliss and happiness? It's like we came out of that place. I mean, I think it's like that sixty-year thing, or we you know what we're here we're talking about about being kicked out of Eden. We're kind of not. We were in such a great place, and we don't, we weren't even, we, we didn't know. We didn't know, yeah. Yeah, and Joni Mitchell said it all, you know, uh, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Yeah. yeah. Paved paradise, put up a parking lot, yeah. Yep, that's what we did, and now hopefully we'll learn to love it. And Yeah, right, and maybe we we'll are. get rid of some of those parking lots. Yes. 
Um, do you, well, let's see, I want to, I've chosen a poem that I want to end with, but we have a little time and I haven't let you choose a poem from your book that you would like to read. Oh, well, um, so let's, keep... I have a couple of favorites, but, um, you know, you maybe, maybe I'll impose, impose it on you. Um, <clears throat> I think, uh, one of the things I like, I liked in, in doing this book was, uh, I'm diving back into my uh, childhood and uh, the misery of grade school years. And let's see, where is that poem? Um, and this is Lee Rossi looking for his poem. Yes, my KSG. name is Lee Rossi. Hardly, uh, oh, yes, on page 54. And um, we we do abide by the FCC rules, so I can't. I don't know what, I know some of your poems. The, there, are, there are no okay. bombs in here. <laughs> okay. Um. But this uh, this goes back to grade school and uh, the fact that you know we always had after uh, the noon hour we'd have music lessons you know we had a little song book that had all kinds of interesting songs which you no longer find in children's uh, at least public school um, song books and uh, I hope everybody's familiar with not just Gregorian chant but Stephen Foster. Um, it's called Old Folks, and the title comes from The Old Folks at Home, Stephen Foster. Let's not talk about the, <clears throat> the small purgatory of recess, the heat, the grass stains, and skin knees, the third graders knuckle-walking through a forest of wee six-year-olds. Let's ignore the end- endless lo- wait to climb the one-slide's narrow stairs Angels in ascent, devils in the sandy pit at the bottom, the same eternity waiting for a wooden plank to lift me closer to the Empyrean, and quicker still, dropping me back to the fallen world. All that boundless practice, all that practice for the boundless punishment of death. Nor have I anything good to say about the nun, sister most dear, the steel rod of her eyebrows stretching from ear to ear. She loved us, no doubt, as only the forsaken can. She tortured us with all the love she had for our ignorance and willingness to obey. If she gave anything, it was her own thwarted love of music, meter of discipline. Every day as we stood and sang from our songbooks, this black-eyed immigrant girl, teaching us scales and modes, teaching us to read by sight whole, half, and quarter notes. Oh, she loved those melodies. Not just Gregorian, but Stephen Foster. His Jim Crow anthem is her very favorite. We were her darkies, the school, her plantation. How we longed for the ruler and the slap, our inheritance of murder. Our inheritance of murder and rape. Only God could know us, our forgotten sins, the sins committed by others for which we'd pay with this life and the next. Pretty heavy. Yeah. Like her meter of discipline. She loved music. Her meter of discipline. discipline yes. <laughs> well, Lee Rossi, thank you so much for coming in. Will you end with a poem? Uh, it's kind of the other side of that coming out the other hole called Dinner with the Cannibal. Ah, uh, Yes. Which page is that? That is on page 106. 106. This song, uh, this poem is for my daughter when she was much younger. It's a little bit older now. Uh, You can't have children unless you find love. (laughs) Once you find love, you know, everything becomes love. Um, Dinner with the cannibal. Standing imperiously in her high chair, my two-year-old reaches with her fork and jabs my arm. I eat you up, Daddy, she tells me, and I get her point as she stabs me again in the ear. I eat Daddy head, she declares gleefully, popping the tines between ruddy baby lips. And I remember reading about New Guinea hill people, how they eat dead relatives, scooping the curded pudding of the brain from its china cup, growing sick from the feast. How long before my own gray matter begins to mimic SpongeBob. I should warn her about the dangers of spooning up the past, what she might find on her trip to Ireland and Italy, 
back beyond Australopithecus to the great mother of us all. This Eucharist, the sacrament of family, has perils for the stoutest heroine. No matter, armed with shining fork, she's fearless. Insatiable historian, she'll devour it all. Welcome the fullness, and maybe then, take time to wonder what it all means. Thank you, Lee Rossi. Good night, everyone.